Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Today's guest is Lori Kleiman. Lori is a human resources speaker and author. She comes to us with 30 years of experience in HR consulting. She's wrote several books, including HR You Can Use, Fire HR Now, and the book that we're actually planning to discuss today is Taking Your Seat at the Table, Being a Strategic Executive, Creating Actionable Plans, and Embracing Technology. Lori, it is awesome to have you. Thank you. It is fabulous to be here. I'm glad we could make this work today. Yeah, I'm very glad too. So you you sent me your books and I I loved them for one. And I really want to spend the, our time today talking about taking your seat at the table because I think for this audience, that book is so relevant because as HR leaders, we're trying to figure out a way to really take a seat at the table and to be with that executive team making strategic decisions. But before we dive into that, I really wanted to ask you about the your previous work, Fire HR Now. That is a pretty <laughs> harsh that's a pretty harsh title and I think in the introduction for taking your seat at the table, you 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 talk about that and why maybe it wasn't well received, but I think your your point in the whole book is probably spot on. Can you just elaborate on that point of why you maybe titled it that way? Absolutely, Brandon. And it was really fun. It was actually a real decision of do I or don't I? Um, And it's part of why that it's a little bit in retirement right now. Um, Fire HR Now was really my message to corporate America and really to small business people who were constantly saying that their HR department wasn't strategic. Their HR department only did what employees wanted. They didn't watch out for the best interests of the company, that their HR department were just a bunch of administrative people. And so the idea of that book, which is still available out on Amazon, I think, but um, is really about If that's the kind of HR person you have in your organization, then fire them. That isn't what we as an HR profession want to be or want to be known for. So the way I wrote that book, which is really interesting, I think, is that it's written every chapter has a message for the CEO or leader of the business and a message for the HR person. And essentially what I do is advocate for that HR person If they're in an organization that's keeping them in that administrative role, how to get out of that place, or it may be time to look for a new position. And so really what evolved from the book and the presentations I gave around it was taking your seat at the table. And what taking your seat at the table is really a very positive message, I hope and think, for HR people that came out of the side of the the HR side of Fire HR now, really helping people advocate for themselves 
And the idea, we've all heard so much about getting your seat at the table, and it really is a little passe, and I was worried about that with my third book, but I think the message and the message I'm trying to send is that stop waiting for somebody to ask you to join the table, which getting your seat at the table really is all about. I want to say to HR people, hey, just take your seat, show up at the meeting, be there, have a great idea that really forces your organization to do nothing but pay attention to you. And that is the whole idea of the book, Taking Your Seat at the Table. I love that point just because I think most most of us uh, can be pretty passive and we're not just likely to just take it, take our seat at the table necessarily. And there's, I think there's a common misconception about HR people with, with the executives or leaders of companies. What are some of those misconceptions and what, what do CEOs of company often say about HR professionals? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that HR people don't understand the business. The vast majority of HR people that I know either came into the HR role through operations, so they really know the business, or through business school. Many HR people these days, um, although I don't have the exact statistics, go into a business-related collegiate program with a focus in human resources. So they've taken accounting, they've taken economics, they've taken marketing. They know more about a business than owners sometimes give them credit for. It's for the HR person to show how they can utilize those things and you know show the business owner that they really can demonstrate that kind of strength in the operation. And I want to ask you this, what kind of competencies are really needed nowadays in that HR role? Because if we if we sort of look at how HR has been viewed, which is you know, paper pushers, administrative, department of no, you know, all those things that you hear yeah. about. But what today, the, the, the new strategic HR person, what sort of competencies are needed to, to be at that table? I think the most important competency is linkage. And I'm kind of I just made that word up, but um, I like it. <laughs> the idea that we as HR people can link the program and processes that we are involved with to the rest of the business. When I give presentations, for instance, at association meetings and that kind of thing, I talk to HR people about don't go in and tell the CEO or the management team that you want to have a company picnic because everybody should get together and there should be a social event and isn't that wonderful. That isn't driving the business forward. What you want to do is say that the reason we're going to have a company picnic this year is because we're going to use those communication points to be able to show our employees maybe our new customer base or we're going to have um, a new way of interacting. We're going to have the leadership team actually do the cooking. And as people come through that line, we are going to tell you people's first names and you are going to address them by first name. Maybe I've gone to some great company picnics where 
we have cross-functional groups that are all on a softball team together. And we're going to use that company picnic so that the salespeople can start to work with the shipping people, the customer service people, and our operations people. And so that we're linking some of our programs and processes, we really have to get out of this mindset of, you know, we're just doing things because it's nice to do for the employees. It's nice to do nice things for your employees, don't get me wrong, but you want to make sure that the nice things you're doing are really tied to business outcomes that are going to drive your organization forward in the future. In your book, you talk about the the 20-60-20 formula, and I don't know, I don't think, I don't know if you necessarily created that, but you, you brought up the point in the book uh, just about the HR profession in general. Can you elaborate on that? Because I thought it was a pretty interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to give full credit to the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. That comes out of the work from David Ulrich. And most of us in HR know about David Ulrich. He's written a number of books and he runs um, a consultant. Institute out of the Ross School of Business. And that that data comes from them. And what it says is that today, now it's about three years old, but honestly, as I travel the country and I ask people where they are today, I think it still really does hold true. 20% of our profession, the HR professionals, are actually sitting at that leadership table. They are part of management. They are making decisions every day and they are making decisions that truly do impact the organization as a whole. Another 60% of our profession is in one of two places. Either they, and this is where I digress a little bit from the literature probably and add my own um, observations of working with HR people on a national basis, 60% of the HR people that I see are really divided into two categories. One are those HR people who've decided to really become subject matter experts. Those would be our recruiters, our people that specialize in comp and benefits, people that may be talent um, talent acquisition is recruiting, training and development people, organizational design, those subject matter experts who've really decided that they don't want to seat at the leadership table, but have a great opportunity to move their career up by being a part of that kind of um, expertise. Then we've got the group in that 60% that really is trying to become that HR leader. And sometimes that can be done in the organization you're in today, and sometimes you have to move on to find that kind of a role. The bottom 20%, and I say bottom with all due respect, because those are either 20% that, again, they would say are administrative professionals who are not really interested in moving up the corporate ladder. But I like to look at that 20% with a lot of respect as well. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it's a lot of entry-level people. We have a lot of people that come out of HR and join organizations and learn the field, learn the um, profession by starting in those entry-level roles. But we also have a group of people that I like to give a lot of respect to. 
And those are the HR professionals that have chosen as a way of addressing their own work-life balance to really be in more of a support HR role. And the nice thing is that we're always going to need HR professionals who are primarily focused on internal um you know, internal customer service, helping people doing those kinds of administrative tasks. So we want to make sure that, that we respect all three buckets. You know, the first being the leaders, the second being people that are still figuring out where they want to go next in their career, and then both those entry-level people and the people who can really drive our organizations forward. This doesn't necessarily tie into to that point, but it was in your in your book, uh, technological advances. I mean, we're mm-hmm. living in an interesting time right now, and uh, things are moving so rapidly from a technology standpoint. And you know, as HR professionals, we're having to adapt to these new tools, and uh, basically, they're they're changing the way administrative tasks are done. What is your your thought about the role that technology? advances in HR are really changing the profession. And, uh, you know, the follow-up question that would be, how do HR professionals adapt to this sort of technological landscape and become, or I guess, use that technology to their advantage and becoming more strategic? I think that HR people, um, let me, let me start by telling you the fears I hear. Um, of moving forward with technology. Um, One is that they will lose that personal connection with their internal customers or essentially the employees. The other is that they don't trust their employee population to enter data into databases, essentially, that they rely on all day, every day. For example, I was the the prime leader of this um, march, probably 10 years ago in my defense, to say that there is no way I would ever go with employee self-service on payroll because (laughs) I was not going to allow employees to enter data. And I don't even mean sensitive data, but I will give you a great example of something that happened to me years ago. I live in the southern part of Chicago. Well, I live in Chicago, which is right on the Indiana border for your listeners that may not be familiar. And we had an employee who moved across the border to Indiana, put in his own address change, which would be normal. And payroll, we never picked it up. Payroll never picked it up. And we never started withholding Indiana taxes. So it was not until the W-2 was issued at the end of the year that he came to us and said, I've got a problem. You've still been withholding Illinois. So, you know, what we need to do as HR professionals, there's the whole trust but verify. You know, we need to trust employees to do these things, but also put systems in place that we're making sure that mistakes like that don't happen to the extent that we can. I believe in always admitting my mistakes and learning from them, so I have. Um, But also understanding the great value that technology can provide our employees and our internal customers being able to access things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They don't have to wait for you to be out of a meeting to get access to information that they might otherwise want. 
technology has made enormous strides in the way we do recruiting today. I mean, I can't even, I laugh when I think about what my office looked like back in the eighties <laughs> and I had stacks, Rolodex. Stacks, right. And I had stacks of resumes. Um, we used to mail out postcards, thanking people for applying. I mean, <laughs> It's now, way, it's it's wasted resources. It's, it's just crazy. Right. And what it's really done, I mean, I believe that technology is the one thing that has allowed HR people to take that seat at the table because we can rely on technology to get so much administrative work done that our time is then freed up to work on the more strategic, interesting HR projects. So I think technology um, is essential when we talk about electronic employee files, I think are, are just critical, employee self-service, using technology for applicant tracking, using technology for performance management. There's just no reason to do all that on paper anymore. No, I mean, technology absolutely makes it simpler for us to do our jobs. And like, if you're, if you're really wanting to calculate a return on investment or, or whatever, I mean, you, you could definitely figure out where your resources are going and how they're best used. And I think technology gives you the data behind it. So th I love it for that. You know, one of the fears you, you talked about when you, you, we first started talking about technology is the fear that people are, are not going to be connected anymore. So HR feels like they're going to have no connection with their, the employees anymore. And would you agree that it's just different now? It's just a different form of connection. That's exactly. And, and, yeah, and that are free and it, and it frees them up to actually connect more often because they're not spending time licking un envelopes and sending out resumes or, or response letters. Not only more often, but I also think on more substantive things. So you can sit down and really have a career development conversation with an employee rather than sitting with them and talking to them about when they lost their last ID card or what their new address change is all about. Really getting to know them, understanding where they're um, blockages might be, where they need additional training, where they need additional resources, and really spend dedicated time helping them solve problems that truly will make a difference to your organization rather than you know, just basically being their secretary, if you will, um, and doing things that that they really could do themselves if you force them to do that. In the book, you say money is the language of business. And I wanted to ask you, how, how do HR professionals, if they don't really have a business background, they didn't go to school for it, how do they get the, the business competency and to be able to speak, you know, finance, marketing, operations, how do, how do they have conversations with the executive team if they don't really have that that training or experience? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because it is my favorite solution. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, I really believe, and I have a great blog on my website about it, the um, value in getting involved in nonprofit organizations. Mm. So the reason I say that is, for example, let's say you don't have that kind of finance, accounting, economic, tax 
um, background that you might need to participate in some of these organizations. Pick any charity that's important to you. It can be your kid's PTA. It can be your religious organization. It can be something focused on a health issue that you or your family has. And volunteer to be on their local board. Just go in. Um, most of them, you know, they're always boards looking for people. And then volunteer to be the treasurer. There is no better way to learn than to jump in and do it. But obviously at your own company, your CFO or controller is not going to just hand over the books to you one day. The advantage to doing it in a nonprofit is you get to know the people personally. So there is a little bit of safety and you can talk about what you're seeing in the finances. They can ask you questions, but they know you're not really the expert. And typically there is in these organizations, somebody who really is ultimately responsible, who will watch over, you know, I, I did this for myself with the National Speakers Association and took on the role of treasurer for our Illinois chapter. And I said, but I'm not having anything to do with taxes. That was the only, <laughs> my only caveat. But our professional administrator said, no problem. I do the taxes and I'll show you what I'm doing. Mm. So I was in an oversight role just to make sure it was all fair. And but so I had exposure to it. So you know, of course, you can listen to podcasts just like this. You can take there are all sorts of opportunities for free webinars. You can go to your local community college. But I really love the idea of learning by doing. And I think being able to give back. I'm a passionate giver as it is. And, um, you know, being able to be involved in a nonprofit that you really care about and feel good about and you can take away some learning and education, I think can really be a great win-win for everybody. I love that. I never really thought of that idea of, of just volunteering at a nonprofit and getting the, the on, like hands-on experience and sort of coaching from the team members. I think that's brilliant. Oh, brilliant good. Idea. Well, thank you. And yeah, I and really encourage people to do it. Yeah. So if, you know, for people who maybe don't have the time to volunteer or maybe they just have a limited time, what are some of the other things besides, you know, podcasts and those sort of things that they could do for, for self-learning? I mean, would you recommend going and get an MBA or is there other kind you of know, condensed courses? So I would say if you don't have time for a little bit of volunteer work, you certainly probably don't have time for an MBA. Um, <laughs> There are all sorts of courses online. There are lots of certificate programs, that sort of thing. I encourage people to be cautious. Um, things that are, especially the things that, are, it seems that the more expensive that they are, the less valuable they might be. Uh, yeah. You know, there's some programs out there that are, um, that are just really focused on money-making opportunities. And so I would just encourage people to make sure that what they're getting or what they're learning is truly not just a certificate for the sake of putting that certificate on your resume, but rather something that really is going to further your career and provide the kind of tools and education that you want going forward. Um, so that would be, you know, I would just encourage people to look around and be very, um, to scrutinize heavily to make sure that that what they're paying for, in fact, is um, is something they're going to get a lot of value out of. 
I want to talk about HR titles real quick. Okay. HR generalist is typically the the title I've heard, but then you know the last I would say five years has changed to an HR business partner. Just can you explain sort of the shift um, to the, that business partner and what the differences are? I th- I just think you know it's popping up more and more, and I think they're they're you know when you look at job descriptions, they're functionally very different. They really are, and that's what I was going to say. Um, Typically, I see the role HR business partner in much larger organizations where they are truly focused on helping leaders manage the human capital of that division, department, organization um, to move forward. Typically, at least what I've seen, where there's an HR business partner, there is... um, support for benefits Mm. and comp and recruiting. And sometimes the HR business partner does that, but often the HR business partner facilitates that for their business unit through those subject matter experts we were talking about earlier that support the entire organization. In a smaller company, which is where a lot of my world had come from, Really, the title HR generalist is what exactly what it says. It's that HR person who can do a little bit of everything. And mm-hmm. I actually just saw a really interesting article. I'm pretty sure it was in the Harvard Business Review that HR generalists tend to make 20% more than subject matter experts. Um, because in organizations, they're really bringing everything to the table. So you know, when you hear HR generalists, sometimes people see that with a negative connotation. I would think of an HR generalist like your internist or your family practitioner for a doctor, um, where it's just the person who knows a little bit about everything. And that can be a very highly skilled, uh, you know, I consider myself an HR generalist, and I also consider myself really to be, you know, among the top of the profession. So, you know, I think it can be a very important role in many, many organizations, but you are right where we see it in in bigger companies, especially they are, are going to the term HR business partner. And I think it's really just to, again, elevate that those HR people to say we are really what we are about is supporting the business. We are, you know, yeah, we're, we're doing it through people, but that's not why our position exists. Our position exists to support the business. So even in a small company, if an HR generalist were to choose that title of HR business partner, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think HR generalist is also should be a really well-respected title. And typically HR generalists are a little bit um, younger in their career you know, we may see them, the people that are three to seven years of experience. Beyond that, you start to move up to HR manager, director of HR, that sort of thing. So that's a little bit of a difference, too, is just the evolution. I'd like to shift over to the point of view of a CEO real quick. And I want to ask you, and this may change, uh, 
what are the the things that are keeping CEOs up at night? And the reason I ask that is really because I want to find out, you know, how is HR people can figure that out so that they can use it to start having those strategic conversations to to solve some of those those problems or or challenges that CEOs are really having that keep them up. Um, I think it's a great question. Um, the literature will tell us that what CEOs say is finding top talent and really making sure that the skills that they need tomorrow are in the workplace today. But, you know, you, um, in, in there, you posed a great other question, which is how can HR find out? Um, and that's most critical. Just like with everything, we don't want to assume what's keeping our CEO up at night is what's keeping the survey people up at night. So what do I say do? I say walk in and ask him or her. Um, and one of my tips, you know, a lot of HR people say to me, well, I don't have access. You know, he won't take a meeting with me. Da, 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 da. Invite someone to lunch. It is amazing how many people that are so busy all day long will accept a lunch invitation. Everybody wants to go out for lunch. So where you're having trouble making those connections, and I encourage HR people to make lunch dates with all the functional leaders. I think they should be going out to lunch with their CFO, with their head of operations, with somebody in marketing. It's the best way to just get out of the building, be two people, and just talk about, you know, what are your main goals this year? How can HR support those? What are you looking forward to doing with your next step? You know, those sorts of things. And really be there in the other person's space and see how you can interact with them that way. You talked a second ago about how one of the main issues that CEOs will keep them up at night is the finding talent piece. And whether or not that's true, I, I think there's there's probably some truth to that and, and probably will be for, for the years in the future. But I, I wanted to, to ask you, you know, in the, in the past, I think HR people, recruiters uh, would do more of the, I think you call it fill the seat activity. Mm-hmm. Why is that not such a good idea anymore? And why are we shifting to now really just focusing on the long term and and fit. You know, Brandon, it's so much about what you said about technology or, you know, our conversation around technology. It's a complete waste of time. If we don't put the time in up front to find a candidate that's going to be a really good fit, not just in skills, but in culture fit, we're going to be turning around doing the same thing in four, six, eight months. We do know today you're not going to recruit somebody who's going to stay 25 years, likely. But you want them to stay three years, four years, get a promotion. Maybe they'll stay five, six, seven years. If you don't find that right person up front, people think nothing these days of starting a job. They'll be in it for three months, decide this isn't for me. And in two minutes, they'll go find another job. And you've not only wasted your own time as an HR professional, but you're wasting your manager's time, your manager's wasting the coworkers' time, anybody who trained them. I was actually recently at a tour of Zappos, which was really mm. fun. I think every HR person, if you're ever going to be in Vegas, go over there. It's a great tour. And um, 
but they talk to us to hire someone for their call center. They spend four months interviewing them. Um, now, obviously, they're not talking to them all day, every day for four months. But part of their logic is that they want people who really want that job and are willing to wait for it and are willing to come back in and take another test and sit through another interview. And they have good long-term employees in their call centers. So, you know, their logic is put the work in up front so that once you've got a great person there, you can move on and start running your business. And I think there is some really good logic to be learned from that. The next question I have for you is um, sort of selfish. I thought I found it pretty interesting, the point you made in the book. And, and from what Zenium does, I think this is very relevant. But you, you talk about outsourcing. And you, you talked about how in the past it's really seen as just a way to restructure and reduce headcount and it basically just do HR a different way. But uh, we've seen it in, in in our business where it's not really outsourcing anymore. It's just it's more of an augmentation of of HR, a different way of doing HR. Is we can wrap around uh, HR people that maybe aren't as experienced. I mean, what's your what's your overall take on on outsourcing as like a, a way to just cut head headcount? Well, I think you are absolutely right that organizations like Zenium have a fabulous place in organizational culture, especially where the organization may not be large enough to support their own HR person, mm -hmm. but they want their employees to have that kind of internal customer service and, and resources and those kinds of things. But also, I think Zenium brings a great role to the table where the HR person does want to get into more of the strategic conversations and just doesn't always have the time to do it. There, I see many organizations, I'm sure you do too, you can speak to, where they're using a Zenium, but they also have an in-house HR person. And that in-house HR person is having those dedicated one-on-one -on -one conversations with both employees and executives, and they're going to the strategic planning retreat. Um, earlier in my career, I was in an organization similar to Zenium, and I had one client, and some of my coworkers had clients as well. We went to the strategic planning retreat. Um, they just really didn't want to be in the business of running the HR department, but they understood the value of bringing people like the people on the Zenium team into the conversations. So I don't think that they're mutually exclusive anymore. Um, they can very, you know, become very much a part of the overall organization if you use them correctly. There, there's an interesting tidbit. You, you talked about vendors, and I never really kind of thought of this point, but under the section action-oriented and accountable, you, you talk about doing a review of vendors in the marketplace every three years or so. Yeah. And, you know, as a, I'm a marketing director and I get inundated with, uh, you know, sales tools and marketing platforms, and, <laughs> and I, I get sort of annoyed by it, but you actually make a fantastic point in this book that it's, hey, let's do a, a vendor review every three years we'll put out an RFP and we'll basically and you build an awesome table in the book where you just sort of outline what each vendor can do and and just maybe explain that thought process because I think it's I think it's one that uh, you know where people like myself get kind of annoyed by sales pitches right it 
we should actually be paying attention, I think. (laughs) Well, and I think, so here's what I say when I speak publicly, and it is one section of my presentations that I'm actually thinking of building out um, into a presentation in and of itself, because people really like it. I do not believe in changing vendors every three years. I mean, I yeah, think, just to do it. Yeah. Right. You make, but, you make that point. Yeah. Too. What I do think happens for many of us is that we've used the same vendor over and over again. And mm-hmm. we get, for instance, this email blast that you've just come up with a new upgrade or a new product or a new this or a new that. And we just ignore it. Whatever. We go back to work. By doing this review every three years, you will start to see what your preferred vendor's competitors are out there doing. It may be of interest to you, it may not, but it certainly would be a forum for conversation between you and your vendor. And more times than not, I've had my current vendor say to me, well, yeah, we do that. Don't you remember? We sent out an email about it and I always say no. I used to have a payroll vendor that that happened on so frequently that we started just setting up quarterly meetings with their salesperson to just remind us of what came out new that quarter. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, the advantage to doing that kind of a review once every three years is really about being able to sit down and look at, and chances are the services you need today are not the services you needed the day that relationship began. That things have evolved, things have changed, your department may have gotten bigger, it may have gotten smaller, you may need more services. So those, you know, I think it's critical that we do that because especially with smaller organizations that are using a lot of outsourced vendors, we don't often remember all the different services that they offer. I want to, we've been going kind of long and you're just so darn interesting. And uh, and the book, the book is fascinating too. So I really, I want to recommend the book to a lot of people, but can you just sum up the discussion, sum, sum up the book and just, you know, tell the listener, why should they read this book? What what do you hope people get out of it? And, you know, where, where to go from here? Well, Brandon, I so appreciate that. Um, so what do I, summing up the book is this. An HR person needs to advocate for themselves. They need to take that step up to be noticed and really be what I have as the tagline, being that strategic executive who's action-oriented and technologically savvy. And I think that as Brandon has kindly mentioned, there are lots of tools in the book that will help you do that. For people that are maybe not otherwise comfortable taking that kind of a role, there may be some ideas and some different worksheets and that sort of thing in the book that you can take with you as you go forward. So that's really what I hope HR people will get out of it and out of this conversation is just how to be that business person so that you can really have a fascinating HR career that goes far beyond administrative technology or, you know, the administrative pieces of HR. And I also wanted to just quickly mention, you know, for people listening who aren't necessarily HR people, maybe they're a CEO or a president and they're trying to get, you know, a hold of this HR thing and figure out what it is. You also wrote a, a, another book, HR You Can Use. And we, I'm, I'm hoping we can invite you back and we could talk about that book because I think it's 
you know, for this audience, I think they they need that as well. And I'd love to be able to discuss that with you. Sure, I would love to. That's a very uh, much more nuts and bolts about human resources for those people that either are business owners that are too small to have an HR department or office managers that are managing HR and likely a great book for a lot of Zenium's clients who just want to learn a little bit more about the services you're providing for them and making sure that, you know, you're both on the same page. So there may be some of your clients you'd like to read it so they understand why some of the processes you put in place are important as well. Lori, if people want to connect with you or, or buy the book or, or see what you're up to, what, what's the best way to, to reach out? Well, the best way in a big way is to just go to my website, which is hrtopics.com, H-R-T-O-P-I-C-S.com. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, and my Twitter is just Lori Kleiman, so I'm easy to find there. Um, certainly, if you want to buy the book, you can buy it from my website, or you can go to Amazon. All three books are actually available out on Amazon. So either one, whichever you prefer, any of those. Awesome. Ways. And we will, uh, since we'll have show notes and we'll have this on our blog with the full transcript, we'll actually put links up to to that to those as well. So perfect. Uh, I appreciate can get that. It that way. Yeah, you bet. Well, Lori Kleiman, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I learned a lot from it, and I, I know that listeners will get a lot from it as well. Great. We Thanks, it. Brandon. I appreciate you guys having me here. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.